Hope y'all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts, Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, just look underneath you. There's a Bible there. You can open up to Acts chapter 8. You can keep that Bible. It's free. It's yours. Uh, take it and um, use it for the rest of your life. Give it to someone that you know that doesn't have one. Whatever you want. Acts chapter 8. We are studying through the, uh, the book of Acts together. We started uh, a few months back uh, in Acts chapter 1, and we are going through the entire book of Acts together. We just go through books of the Bible here, and as we finish one, we go to another. Uh, and we started the book of Acts intentionally because as we want to, uh, as a church, concentrate pr- predominantly on three things, community, mission, and care. And as we're focusing in on these three things, community, mission, care, we believe that we will fulfill what the Lord has called us to as a church. And so as we grow in community and as we grow in mission and continually reaching more people and we grow in caring for one another, we as a church will fulfill the mission that the Lord gives to every single church. And so um, right before we started the book of Acts, we talked about those three things, community, mission, care. Uh, and as we're now going into the book of Acts, what we're wanting to do as we go through the entire book of Acts together, we're going to see example after example of those three things being done, where the community is being community, loving each other. They're also living lives of mission, reaching people, and they're caring for one another. And so as we see example after example through the book of Acts, we will see how we can do that in our own day, how we can do that in our own church. And so that's why this particular sermon series, the book of Acts, is called Blueprint, or Understanding God's Design for the Church. And so uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 9. Starting at verse 9. We're going to go through 25 today. Uh, we're going to talk about Simon the Magician and whether Simon the Magician was saved or not. <laughs> but as we do that, uh, in a bigger thing, we're going to understand some things about the gospel. Uh, some, some interesting and I think very helpful things to th- think about the gospel and how that helps us live lives on mission. Now, in order to do uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 9, in order to talk about Simon the Magician and Philip preaching the gospel. We're going to do a little bit of review so everybody can kind of know where we are. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll give a a quick little uh, three-minute review so when we get up to verse 9, you kind of know what's going on in the story, and then we'll look at this particular story. We'll read it 8 through 25, and then I'll go back and and show you some um, things about the amazing power of the gospel. So let's pray, and then we will jump into Acts chapter 8. God, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that uh, the power does not reside in me at all, but instead resides in the Holy Spirit who promises to teach us and, and show us all things and resides in your word, the inerrant word, where we can understand who you are and understand what you've called us. You can train us in, your, in righteousness and you can show us where we need to grow. You comfort us. And so I, I thank you that really as a, as a, as a preacher, the pressure's off me. And there is no pressure on you, you're God. And so I pray that you would use me today through the preaching of your word to call all of us to a greater understanding of who Christ is and what he's done, a deeper love for Jesus, to show us places that we, we don't give our lives over to you, places that we can repent, places that we can um, grow as believers. But also, Lord, that you would, by the power of the Spirit, grow our affections for your Son. Help us see and understand the vastness of this great gospel. So be with us now as we look into your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 9. And so before we go in, uh, I want to give you a little bit of an understanding of what's going on so you can fully understand um, this particular text. So as you know, one of the, kind of the thesis statement or the summation statement that 
the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, is working on is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, maybe you've memorized this growing up, but uh, I'm going to read it because I stumble every time I try to say something I've memorized. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells them, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. By the way, that ha- happens in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, martureo is where we get our word martyrs from. You'll be my witnesses. So you're going to be the kind of people that witness or tell people about Jesus. You'll be my witnesses. And then he says, um, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this, this particular verse is the thesis or the premise statement or the outline that, that Luke is writing the book of Acts on. So chapters 1 through 7 are telling about the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 13 are t- talking about the gospel spreading through Judea and Samaria. And chapters 13 and on is talking about the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. So Luke very much wrote that verse in the very beginning on purpose because he's wanting everybody to see as he writes 28 chapters how the gospel is doing exactly what Jesus said. So we are in Acts chapter 8. So we're in that transition point from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. So as we're in that transition point, I want you to see how the transition happens. So you've perhaps heard this story many times in Acts chapter 6 where the apostles are preaching and as they're preaching, a need arises over uh, where the the Greek-speaking widows, that means there were people that were, that were Jewish but they spoke Greek, uh, not Hebrew, there was a need among those particular widows. So you had several, several widows, and you had the, the Hebraist, the Hebrew-speaking, and the, the Hellenist, the Greek-speaking, where those that were Jewish, the, the Hebraist, the, the Hebrew-speaking widows, they were getting taken care of. They were in the majority. Everything was fine. But you had the, some that were in the Greek-speaking, the minority, who needed to be taken care of. And so the apostle said, we need to make sure we continue preaching. We need to make sure we continue praying, because that's what the Lord has called us. So we shouldn't Uh, be a part of the daily distribution. So we need some other people to do that. So uh, they decided, let's do that. So in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, they picked the seven men that would be a part of serving the food to those Greek-speaking widows that were being neglected. You can see in verse 5, it said what they do, uh, please the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, etc. And as a matter of fact, all those names are Greek, and so very wisely, they chose leaders from the minority to serve the minority. And I made the point as we looked at that, a lot of times the answers that we're looking for are in the minority and that's who we need to be looking for. For the future questions of ministry, we shouldn't assume that we have it. The answers are in the minority. And so that's what they do. They find their answers in the minority. Those men come forward and they make sure that the distribution of, of the food is happening, and God blessed that. You can see that in verse 7 where it says, And the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So what they did was right. The apostles kept preaching and teaching. Those seven men served the widows, and that was good. Now, in Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8, there's a little bit of a, of a move over to uh, some of those people they chose. They chose seven, and really all of 6 and 7 and 8 that we're looking at thus far is going to focus in on Two of those seven men. You can see Stephen, verse 5. Um, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And Philip. And so what, we're, what we've seen over the last few weeks is there's a focusing in on Stephen and Philip. These, these table waiters that were chosen. And the ministry that they had <clears throat> as they were named uh, the table waiters. So in chapter 6 and on, you can see in verse 8, Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace. So he went about proclaiming the gospel. He went about doing signs and wonders. He was falsely accused. Uh, that's the false accusation happens in 13, never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. That was not true. And he says they're changing the, the law, they're changing the customs of the, of the temple. That's not true. And then we get all into chapter 7. 
And all of chapter 7 is the speech that Stephen makes to help them see, you have the wrong view of the temple and the law, I have the right view of the temple and the law. And then he makes some statements at the very end of 51 where he calls them stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, they killed God, etc. They're very infuriated with the, with the teaching that he made and what he says at the very end, so much so that they riot and kill him. Remember, you've got to remember this, so far, this Christianity, this new belief system, this Belief in Jesus as God has always and only been centralized in Jerusalem. Has not moved in. It's always been a one city thing. Only in Jerusalem. Thus far, that's all it's ever been. Well, they kill Stephen. uh, And you can see at the end of chapter 7 and into verse 8. And Saul, who will one day be converted, and he calls himself Paul. his, His name doesn't change to Paul. He changes his name to Paul. Because Paul's a Gentile name and he's the disciple to the Gentile. So he makes that missiological choice. It's not one of those kind of Simon, uh, to, to Peter, Simon to Peter things. Anyway, that's side note. So you have this uh, in, in, in chapter 8 verse 1. Saul's holding the coats as they're killing, as they're killing, as they're killing Stephen. Uh, and then after that, everybody who's centralized. And again, it's only been, Christians have only been in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, the very first Christian dies. In chapter 5, it was like, we're going to beat you up. We're going to put you in prison. We're going to let you out. And we're going to tell you not to ever do it again. They, they counted being, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. But nobody's ever died. This was a shift here at 8, chapter 1. Uh, eight, chapter 8, verse 1, we're like, okay. We're not just going to be jailed or persecuted. We're going to be killed because we're Christians. This is a huge shift. We can't stay in Jerusalem anymore we have to get out of Jerusalem. And we talked about this last week. The sovereign hand of God used, he told him in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you're going to have to take this gospel, not just Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria. And we would think, well, that's going to happen by me saying, I'm finally called, I'm going to go over to Samaria and send me out and give me you know, some money, and etc. And we think that's the normal way of sending. God doesn't use that to send them. He uses persecution brought to the church, fear for their life, and that's how they're sent out on mission. It's not the way that we would think. It says in verse, chapter 8, verse 1, And there arose on that particular day great persecution against the church. So, so Stephen was the domino, if you will, the very first martyr, which all of a sudden there became, there became a, a great persecution in Jerusalem. And everybody that's there says, we got to get out of here. Like, we're going to die if we stay in Jerusalem. And that's the thing that moves them out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. We're going to see Samaria. But they didn't just go there and get scared and cower down and bunker down and not say anything. Because they're believers, because they're called by Christ, they do what Christians do. When you go to another city, it's not like, can't talk about Jesus now, I've got to keep it in mind. That's not that. It's, we're, we're believers in Christ, believers in Christ talk about Jesus, and so here we are in a new city. You obviously don't know Jesus because it's always and only been in Jerusalem. This is a brand new thing, so hey, unbeliever, let me tell you about Jesus. And so that's what we see. Whenever Stephen is killed, Philip now takes that place. And you can see we start the story about Philip. Um, the, the deacon, if you will, or the table waiter that was chosen in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. You can see it right there in, in verse 4 of chapter 8. Now, those who were scattered because of the, the persecution that arose, and incidentally, the apostles, the leadership, you can see it's right there in verse 1. Everybody was scattered through all the regions of Judea and Samaria, fulfilling Acts chapter 1, 1, verse 8, except the apostles. And I noted last week, we would not do that. We would think, hey, if God's going to really do some work in other cities we got to send the leadership. I mean, the leadership's got to get out of the city and go. But that's not what happens. The leadership stays in Jerusalem, and everybody else goes. And I just pointed out to us all, the way that that's going to happen for us 
the best way that we're going to be disciples on mission is if all of the congregants are living life on mission, not depending on the leadership for the gospel to go forth, because 99.9% of Christians are not ministers. And so it's, it's depend, the indispensable people are the, are the congregants when it comes to moving the mission all over the world. So, verse 4, they're all scattered. And what does Philip do? He went down to the city of Samaria, or the, a city, or the big city of Samaria. And what does he do in verse 4? He preached the word. Verse 5, he proclaims them the Christ. Verse 6, the crowds are just transfixed in paying attention. This is absolute new information. They've never heard it. He's even doing signs, and his unclean spirits are coming out. He's healing people. And what happens in verse 8? The, the, the thing that happens, much joy in the city. Much joy in the city. So what we're going to do now at verse 9 is we're kind of zooming in on Philip as he's a, a, a refugee slash first missionary moving out of Jerusalem because there's persecution over. This is my Samaria over here. Just let it be Samaria. As he's going over here, he's being, being the church. He's telling people about Christ. We're zooming in on as he's telling people about Christ, one of those people, Simon, the magician. I'll go ahead and say up front, I don't know. I don't know if Simon's truly converted or not. The majority of the commentators I read insist that Simon actually didn't end up being saved. But there were some that were like, maybe, maybe. That'll be in my, that'll be in my conclusion, uh, whether he's saved or not. But we've gotten to this point where you kind of know what's going on. So let's read, uh, starting at 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 9. So this description that we're seeing in, eight, uh, in chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, is before Philip gets there. This is what was happening in that city with Simon. And then after that, here's what happens when Philip shows up. Chapter 8, verse 9. Before Philip gets to this particular city, there was a man. And I want you to notice the similar wording from uh, Philip preaching the gospel to what Simon has. Reread 6 again, when Philip went and preached the gospel. The crowds with one accord paid attention to all that was being said by Philip when they saw these signs. And they were healed and there was much joy. Here's what happened before Philip got there. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. So this man, Simon, had some kind of demonic form of magic, sleight of hand or some real kind of magic. We just don't know. And he he thought he was it. Like he thought he was the junk. He wanted everybody to think he's awesome. And he claimed deity. He said, I get this because I'm God. This is what it said. And they all paid attention to him. That's like it says in verse 6. Because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. He had amazed them with his magic. So he had some kind of likely demonic ability to do some kind of magic. But when Philip shows up, Philip's is way better. <laughs> Philip's because it's from God. It's not fake or real or sleight of hand or, or whatever. Or as I say real from, the, from the, some kind of demon. But real. And it says, but... When Philip shows up, when they believe Philip because he showed up and he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And all those people he preached to were baptized, both men and women. And it was so amazing. Look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized. And he continued with Philip, seeing signs and great miracles performed and he was amazed. Now if we stop there, we hear that, we think, well he's got to be saved. I mean, he's using the same words to talk about Simon the magician as he did about all the other people. We certainly say they were saved. They believed. They were baptized. And it says here, even Simon believed, baptized. And not only that, he continued with Philip. So when I read that, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe so. Maybe he's saved. We're going to get to some other stuff later that will <laughs> throw off the whole, the whole thing. But thus far, that's where we're at. 
Now, uh, they hear about this back in Jerusalem. Remember, he left and the apostles were still in Jerusalem. Verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that over in Samaria, who, you know, Jerusalem had the full-blooded Jews. Samaria had those who were half Jewish, half something else. And so they looked at the Samarians with disdain. You're not the full Jews like us. And so we don't really like you. We don't count you. We don't have any dealings with you. We're not really uh, fans of you. So you can imagine they hear people are getting saved that we never really kind of liked. But they're they're coming Christians, which is what we are. There should be for us uh, an kinship with them. So this is what happens. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that in Samaria they received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. I mean, they sent the, the big guys. This is the big guns. Number one and two come down there who came down and prayed for them. Now, this is interesting language. We'll come back to it. That they might receive the Holy Spirit. I thought that happened whenever you get saved. Why is this was the second thing? We'll talk about that. For, here it is. For the Holy Spirit, he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and that's when they received the Holy Spirit. So some kind of belief in baptism at one point in Samaria. When they get there, they lay their hands on them. Then that's when they received the Holy Spirit. That seems different than what we've ever been taught. I'm coming back to it. Verse 18. Now, Simon sees all this. Remember his background. Magician. You know, he says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Hey, Give me this power also that I may, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on can receive the Holy Spirit. Peter obviously did not like this. You, you, you don't pay for play. Verse 20, for Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You thought you could give people the Holy Spirit and like you could pay to be able to have that ability. That's not how it works. And he looks at him. He says, you have neither part, verse 21. Okay, this is the part that throws me off. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that, Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That's where the commentators say, he's he's not saved. He's not saved. I'm still enough on the fence where one commentator convinced me, like, I just don't know. I could go either way. Probably 90-10, like probably not, but, but still. That's some really convincing words that, that, that Luke uses. He was baptized, he, was, he believed, he was baptized, and he continued. Anyway, back to this. So Simon says this, and he hears that, and he's like, you know, I don't want that. Simon, he says to Simon, then pray for me, Simon, to the Lord, that nothing about what you said would come. Everything you said sounds bad, <laughs> and I don't want that. So pray for me, please, Simon. You're one, of the, you're one of the main guns. You're like the apostle. You're number one right now. Please, would you pray for me? I don't want that to happen. That sounds terrible. Well, after that, John and Peter, on their way back to Jerusalem, it says, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, and on the way, preaching the gospel to many villages of Samaritans on the way. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want you to see four different things about the amazing power of the gospel as we go through this. Uh, we, you've kind of got the, the background. You understand the story. We're going to come to some of those weird spots. Uh, was Simon saved? What's this two-staged salvation thing? We're going to get to that. But there's some things I want you to see uh, on the way. So the first is, if we go back to verse 9, there's this man named Simon. He'd done all these things. And then you have Philip show up into the city. And as we see in verse 4, he preaches the word, as it says in verse 5. He proclaimed to them the Christ. As it says in verse 12, he preached the good news about the kingdom of God uh, and the name of Jesus, and when that happened, they were baptized. They were baptized. So Peter, because of persecution, 
decides that he's not going to stay in Jerusalem. He's going to go to a new place, into Samaria, and to an unreached place. Somewhere that he had never conceived of, but only went there because of persecution. And as he went to, uh, uh, to Samaria, or this great city in Samaria, because of the persecution, when he gets there, he doesn't stay quiet. He doesn't just say, well, I better be quiet so I don't get s- killed like Stephen. Because he's a believer, he, who he is is someone that talks about Jesus. He proclaims the gospel. Verse 4, he proclaims the Christ, proclaims the good news. Verse 4, 5, and 12 are your three verses that tell us what he did. When it says he preached the word, he proclaimed to them the Christ, and he preached the good news about the kingdom. That's who he was, that's what he did. So the first thing about the amazing power of the gospel is this. The gospel, number one, brings revival in unreached places. The gospel brings revival in unreached places. This was a complete unreached place. And because Philip was obedient to the Lord when he got there, and he didn't cower, he didn't get scared, he didn't just look out for self, but when he got to this new people, he said, it's always been in Jerusalem, it's never come here, I should tell you, he proclaimed the gospel to them, he preached it. And the gospel is so powerful that it brings revival to an unreached place. Jeffrey Thomas says it this way about the gospel coming to this new city. He says, when this great awakening happened in Samaria, lives were transformed and turned upside down. A whole new way of life began. People began to talk in new and different ways, and they were full of enthusiasm about certain new things that had come in their lives. They had a new perspective on life, family, job, money, and possessions. They themselves were new people or new creations caught up by this new strength, the Holy Spirit, and they were united in Christian fellowship now with each other by a glorious power that affected everything they did and thought. So becoming a believer when revival breaks out and people start getting saved is an all-encompassing thing. It's not just, Lord, save me so I don't have to go to hell and go to heaven. One day I can do whatever I want, but right now I'm going to do what I want and I can go to heaven. It's an all-encompassing change that happens. A, A massive change an entirely new culture is formed for Christ outside. Revival breaks out in a complete unreached place. And this is the power of the gospel. When proclaimed, the good news is proclaimed by not an apostle, just a regular guy. Philip, he was a table waiter before. Unreached places are being reached. Here he's using a layman. So let's say it this way. As we look at that, we can say, who do you know? in an unreached place, because in Rock Hill, in this day and age, I promise you, there are pockets of unreached subcultures. Even in the South and Rock Hill, there are pockets of unreached subcultures in our city that are unreached. Just like Philip going to Samaria and preaching the gospel to brand new people, there are pockets of unreached subcultures here in Rock Hill that need to hear it. And the power of the gospel is this, that when you do, revival can break out. And what can happen is they can have a whole new perspective on life, family, job, money, and possessions. They can be caught up in a brand new Christian fellowship, and the glorious power of the Holy Spirit will affect everything they do and think. So who around you? Think hard. Who around you are the pockets of subculture where if you were to talk about Jesus, they would look at you with a blank stare like the Samaritans? Who is this guy? That if you preach the good news of Christ, something they've never heard, verse 6, they would be transfixed and pay attention to every word you say. That is unbelievable if that's true. That's what they would say. That's unbelievable if that's true. That's the first thing. The gospel brings revival in unreached places. That's the power of it. The second thing I want you to see is this. And the second thing um, we know, like it's part of who you are, 
but because we know, and I think we just forget about it, I wanted to stop and spend some time on it. Verse 12 and 13. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon. Even Simon. So if we're taking the position that Simon was saved, even Simon, who lived a life of wicked, sorcery, demonic, magician beforehand, even Simon himself believed and was baptized and continued with Philip. So when we think about that, I want want you to think about this. When the gospel is proclaimed to somebody, whoever they are, as a matter of fact, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says, everybody before Christ is a devil worshiper. They are follower of the prince of the power of air. Colossians 1 verses 12 uh, tells us that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. that's That's the state of everybody before Christ. This gospel, when it's preached to your and my dark heart before salvation, awakens us. We, we see and understand the beauty of, I deserve punishment. I deserve wrath. I deserve hell. But God in his infinite grace, mercy, and love says, you don't have to choose that. Instead, out of grace and mercy and love, I've, I've made the way for you not to have those things, but instead receive eternal life forever. And when we see and understand the beauty of the gospel, it's so unbelievably attractive. It's so unbelievably good that we say, yes! And this is the remarkable part. A devil worshiper no longer wants that. Instead, wants to follow Christ. Someone is now transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So that's the second thing. And I wanted to pinpoint this because I think it's just, it can become for Christians something that we just believe and we kind of move on to. We don't ever move on from this. We, we need to stay. The second thing is this, the gospel is undeniably attractive. It's undeniably attractive and powerful. And I think that likely the power of the gospel to transform your and my particular life has become something that we don't think about. So I wanted to stop and think about this. I wanted you to stop and think about this. Think about what the gospel has done for you particularly. Think about the path you were on before Jesus. And now that you that know Christ, think about what he's done. Think about the transformation, the old creation to the new creation. I want you to stop and think about that. It's unbelievable. As Romans chapter 1 says this, You've probably heard this this verse many times. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I don't want to focus so much on the not ashamed part, which we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. But the next line, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This gospel is literally amazingly powerful. It's the power of God. You think about God's power, we think pretty big. Now we say it's the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. When you proclaim the gospel to someone, you're saying words to them and it's entering into their ears. And you think, well, that's not powerful. I talk all the time. Like, here's my, uh, here's my grocery list. Words can't be powerful. I understand. But the gospel's different. When you speak words out of your mouth into someone's ears, what's happening, which we don't see, is as we say that, the Holy Spirit comes behind those words and takes those words. And as they go into their ears, God himself is moving it and transforming minds and hearts. 
And so there's power behind the words of the gospel. Not power behind your grocery list, right? No power behind that. Power behind the words of the gospel. When you proclaim Christ's death and burial and resurrection for us on our behalf, no longer have to be recipients of wrath, but instead recipients of the full glory, the full grace, the full forgiveness of all of our sin. And now all of our lives are changed here, and one day we'll spend a life in heaven with Jesus forever. You don't have to go down the path of death. That's, that's an amazing, powerful message. So much so that it's undeniably powerfully attractive. And I wanted us to stop and just think about that's happened to us. Think of what God has truly done in your heart and life because of the power of the gospel. Continuing in Romans, this is how he says it. I mean, this is, this is astounding. Romans, you've probably heard this tons of times. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is the power and the love and the mercy of God. But God shows his love for us. That's every one of us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, whenever we think about relationships with each other, we, we will extend kindness and mercy and forgiveness to people if they show contrition, if they show kindness to us, but if they just stiff arm us and yell at us and sin against us continually and never show kindness to us, we're not bent towards showing them any kind of mercy. What this verse says is, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were willingly choosing to be stiff arm, complete enemies, not like 50% enemies, 100% enemies against him, he looks at his, his chosen children who would one day believe in him and say, I am, even though you are going to be a still sinner, I'm still going, it says Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So his unbelievable gospel is, even though we want to continue as enemies of his, we want to continue as followers of the prince of the power of the air. What does he say? In his goodness, I am going to make the way by the cross so that you will not do that. And when you see and understand what I've done, who I am, and the, the ends that I go to, to die so that you don't have to do that. When you see that, you're, your heart is quickened, as the old Puritans would say. And you hear and see this and you're just amazed. And now, when you live for him, I want you to consider with me what the change, this unbelievably power of, of gospel has done for you. And conversely, not only what it's done for you, what it can do for people in your life that don't know Christ. The gospel, and I want you to believe this, is undeniably, I say attractive, and I would add, and powerful. Just consider what it's done in your life. I consider what it's done in my life. It's unbelievable. To pull me from a life of wretched sin, willful, wretched sin, and forgive it all, not count it against me, but put all the sin and all the punishment on Jesus, and all I know is forgiveness and life in Christ. It's unbelievable. And I think for us individually, sometimes we, we read this and said, he preached the gospel of the kingdom to all of the people. He preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. We're like, okay, got that. Yeah, what's next? And we, we move away from that. And we, sh- we should never move away from that. So I wanted to make sure we talk about that. Now, as we go into 14 and 15, this is that weird thing I'd say I would come back. I'm not going to spend too much, but this is where it seems to be some kind of two-stage Christianity. 
two-stage conversion. Let's talk about it. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent the big guns, Peter and John. They came down, and as they did this, they prayed for they might receive the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them. So Acts 2, the Holy Spirit fell in Jerusalem. You know, tongues broke out. Everybody got saved, and that's whenever from then on, hey, you need to trust in Christ. Boom, I do, and there I have the Holy Spirit. But over here in Samaria, they trust in Christ. They, get Samar- they, they believe. They uh, get baptized, but the Holy Spirit didn't come. Whenever the big guns came down, they, they put their hands on them, and then that's whenever they received the Holy Spirit. Well, this has caused some major problems over the last 2,000 years. I mean, I'm not just like trying to minimize. Some pretty big major problems. When you read the book of Acts in a way that's prescriptive rather than descriptive because it's narrative and it's describing what's happening, not necessarily prescribing what we should do, there are prescriptive passages. You can get in major trouble. And so what's happened is there's one of three possibilities. There is um, everybody is actually part of a two-stage conversion like this. There's a belief in baptism, and everybody that has that needs to one day have someone that's been a Christian, that's been a while, come and lay their hands on them and receive the Holy Spirit, and that's when they receive it. That's option A, or one. Option two, or or B, is no, there's no such thing as two-stage. It's just one stage, which has been the more orthodox position. It's you... Ask for forgiveness, you, you believe in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you're baptized. All kind of, that's, the, that's how you're converted. Baptism's a public display, and all that's what happened. And Calvin looks at this, and he says, and that's even what's happening there. That's a one stage. It may look like a two stage to you, but what happened is when the apostles came and laid them, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit, they received the giftings of the Spirit. So the one stage was still happening. That's option two, or option three, which is what I think it is, and what most people say it is, is that there is really one stage. When you pray to receive Christ or you trust in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit and you're baptized. But here, this is clearly something happening in two stages. We shouldn't run from that, but um, those that believe in two stages still do, like Pentecostals, they say you won't receive the Holy Spirit until someone lays their hands on you. But what we need to realize is that this is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text. This is a very unique, historically exceptional case So this is not normative, and this is not how it happens today. What's happening here is something that happens uniquely in Samaria and Samaria only. That the Holy Spirit fell in Jerusalem, and it hadn't come in in Samaria, and they went. And this is a historically unique case and not normative for the way it happens today. That's what's going on in here. And that's, that's the big understanding. That way, there's no laying on of hands to receive it. John Stott says, understanding this, he says, the most natural explanation of the delayed gift of the Spirit in this case, <clears throat> was that the first occasion on which the gospel had proclaimed not the, the gospel had been claimed not only outside of Jerusalem but inside of Samaria. And as for the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit later, which is present today in some denominations, Stott says, "This is so good. I never would have thought of this. This is so good." Um, its use as the means of the Holy Spirit is given not just in Acts eight, but today uh, of the laying on of hands so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. He said. Its use today lacks authority. Whether in the Episcopal Church confirmation or the charismatic ministry, those who think that they're doing it, they lack the authority to do that. Here's this reason why. Because the bishops and the Pentecostal leaders that are doing that are not apostles. The apostles, the first 12 disciples, are the ones that can do that. And here's, this is where he gets them. This is awesome. And the people that do it are nowhere near comparable or comparable to Peter and John. And then he says this. Any more than Philip was. 
who was directly appointed by them. In other words, if Philip couldn't do it, Philip, who was appointed by them, and they had, they had what makes us think that we're better than Philip? If Philip couldn't do it, and only they could do it, then we can't. Pretty good argument. Who are we to say we're better than Philip? I would never presume, right? So that's the kind of weird little thing. But back up into 1415, the power of the gospel, I want you to see something else. Verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent, I've already said this like many times, Peter and John. They sent the big guns. I want you to notice something. Luke also wrote something else about John and what, how he feels about the Samaritans. During the ministry of Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, this is what happens. You don't have to flip if you don't want, you can just listen. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, they're walking around. This is where they're going into a Samaritan village, and the Samaritan village rejects Jesus as he's going to the cross. It says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, or literally it says he set his face like flint, that means like with absolute resolve, to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him in, in Samaria who went and entered the villages of the Samaritans to make preparations for Jesus to get there. But when the people did not receive Jesus when he got there because his face was set towards Jerusalem, so their hearts weren't ready for that, this is what John says. Like, he doesn't say, hey, we should pray for him and maybe we can come back in a few weeks and, or, you know, and, and they'll receive. This is what he says. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, hey, Lord, um, you want us to tell fire to come down of heaven and consume them? What? No, these people are made in the image of God. He, he wants to Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, they don't receive it, so let's just blow them all to pieces, God. And I, I, we'll do the heavy work. We'll pray to God and say, Lord, just, just kill them all. Like, instead of, you know, they're people made in the image of God. Maybe they didn't receive. Maybe it's not time. Jesus, of course, is having none of it. And I would never want to be on the other end of a rebuke from Jesus. This is what Jesus says. But he turned and rebuked them and went on to another village. Because Jesus knew one day is coming. I want you to notice this. I mean, there is a major shift in the heart of John, right? He goes from, hey, let's kill them all with fire from heaven to, oh, people are getting saved in Samaria. I think I want to go over there and lay my hands on them and let them receive the Holy Spirit and enjoy being a Christian. That's a huge change from let's kill them all to let's go be missionaries to them. Verse 14, when the apostles and Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, they sent to them Peter and... Can you imagine John hearing this? Oh, man. I mean, last time I was there, I was like, Jesus, let's just kill them all with fire from heaven. And now you're sending me. He's like, walking there. He's like, okay, God, I'm eating crow. You got me? Okay. I'm an idiot. I mean, I'm sorry. These are, you know, can you imagine the whole walk there? And he gets there and he's laying the hands on him. He's like, wow. These people whom... I'm a, John's a full Jew, he never thinks he should have anything to do with. All of a sudden, they're coming to Christ. Here's the thing. Here's the third thing about the power of the gospel. Third thing. The gospel brings revival in unmoved hearts. So we've talked about groups. We're talking about individuals now. The gospel did an amazing work in John's heart. He wanted to kill them with fire from heaven. And now he's laying the hands on them so they can receive the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing work. That's quite a heart change in John. That's quite an amazing work of Jesus. Who needs to hear the gospel from you that you've never considered? He never considered them. So much so, he's like, let's just rain down fire from heaven and kill them. Like, I've never done that, right? Who needs to hear the gospel from you? Who is it that you have never considered that's not like you at all, 
What revival in your unmoved heart needs to happen for a certain person that you would start proclaiming the gospel? I've already said there's pockets, all, all kinds of pockets of subculture around us. Something needs to happen in your heart. And the gospel is power enough to bring revival in your unmoved heart for people that you've never considered sharing the gospel with. Now, verse 18, back to the, uh, as a matter of fact, this is called simony. Throughout church history, if you offer money for some kind of function in the church, it's been termed simony from this. Now when they saw, verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that I'm, anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Spirit. Verse 18 and 19 are quite confusing for me. They're quite confusing. Because I can see it really both ways. I can see I'm a new believer, and I, I, I had a background of magician work anyway, so I see you do this, and I'm like, they lay their hands on, the, on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and he's like, ah, that's awesome. I'm a new Christian. I don't understand how a lot it works. I want to be able to help people like know Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. So uh, like, here's some money. Can I do that so that people can come to know Christ and people can get saved? That sounds good to me. Like, I want to be a part of that. Or it's, hmm, I've always had some kind of little shady demonic power, and that seems pretty good, and I want that, but I want to use it for my own you know, glory, my own recognition, because that's how I used to do it. And so this is really a step back. And so, hey, give me some of that power, and I'm going to take that power, and I'm going to be able to make myself great before people like the way I used to. Which way is it? I'm not sure. I think probably as we keep going, it's the second. Because Peter, um, who's an apostle, I mean, he's number one in charge right now. We have to trust the Holy Spirit's work in his life, and we have to trust Luke, who's carried along by the Holy Spirit, as he writes that he is um, writing truthfully, as Peter examines uh, Simon's heart, he says, but Peter looks at him and says, may your silver perish with you. Uh, that, that verb, like, that's a Hebrew euphemism, a biblical euphemism. And this is literally, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like cussing here. This is literally what it says. When he says, may your silver perish with you, it's really you and your money can go to hell. That's like, ver- that's a strong word. When you think about rebukes, This is a very strong, very strong rebuke that Peter gives Simon. You and your money can go to hell. Take your silver and your pair and all of it, let it perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. I mean, you don't don't do that. You have neither part nor a lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that, Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart, if possible, I mean, this is a rebuke, may be forgiven, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. That's a massive, massive rebuke. And because of it, makes me think, maybe he's not. I mean, when I look at verse 12 and 13, it really sounds like it. He believes, he's baptized, he continues. When I read that, it's like, Luke, through the power of the Holy Spirit, interpreting what Peter said, makes me think maybe he's not. But there is uh, an exhortation given that you need to repent. You need to repent. Not only do you need to repent of your outward action, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. So in our, in our repentance, as we think about, as we live lives for Christ, we don't just focus on the outward wrong actions that we'll continually do as believers, but the heart. Our heart's doing something, and he's telling us, don't just repent of that, but also the inward action of your heart also 
the inward thoughts in, in mind of who you are needs to be constantly repented. Metanoia 180, turned all the way around and going the other direction. Jeremy Rose, he's a pastor in Nashville, t- speaking of repentance, says this, and, and he's just awesome. I love this. A happy and growing Christian is one who is discovering their idols more frequently and repenting of their idolatry early and often. Christian, if you're not repenting a lot, this is to Christians, mind you, as Martin Luther says, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. Christian, if you're not repenting a lot, I love this, you're not having fun living the obedient Christian life. That doesn't sound like fun. Well, it is, because you're not making horrible choices that don't glorify God, but instead pulling yourself away from bad consequences and living a life that glorifies God and having fun knowing that you're in the will of God. That's good. Like, that sounds fun to me. Not wrath, not (laughs) consequences. And this is what he says. The gospel continually applied to our life and continually believed in our life will cause us to ask, Am I looking for something in blank that Jesus instead offers me more fully and more completely in the gospel? Repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere, but instead is found fully in Christ. And the gospel is continually pointing us all to repentance. Repentance. Now, as you keep going, you'll see in verse 24, Simon answered, Back to him. He told him, you need to repent. You need to pray to God. And he says to, to Simon, pray for me. Which is a good thing to ask. You should ask people to pray for you. But he doesn't obey him. He says, you need to pray to God and repent. And Simon says, okay, pray for me. That's not obedience. While it's good to ask for people to pray for you, he doesn't do the work of prayer himself. And again, that makes me on the, the 90-10 side but keep going this is where I get, it gets awesome verse 25 I love this the heart change of John just makes me I want to say giddy but that sounds weird but so it does it makes me giddy I love it verse 25 now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord so this is now Peter and John they returned to Jerusalem and John's kind of like you know what this is pretty awesome these Samaritans I've always kind of had like a disdain because we're Jewish we're supposed to I don't have any more so hey, hey Pete on the way back to Jerusalem could we hit some cities in Samaria on the way? And let's just see if we preach the gospel and they get saved. I'm having so much fun with this. I want to hit some cities on the way back and do some, missi- do some mission work on the way. Pete's like, all right. And they hit cities back on the way. Watch, verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And we've already seen that the result of that is that people get saved all throughout Samaria. We see that in, in chapter 11. We'll come to that later. So here's, here's the, the fourth thing about the power of the gospel and that heart change that happens in John's heart. Now he wants to do it too. And it breaks into the fourth thing. The gospel is creating new unforeseen movements. And I say movements intentionally. This is a movement now. It's moved out of Jerusalem. This is now large groups of people achieving something very large. And you, you're not exclusively now just on Jews. Uh, but they are taking it now to... And it, Think of the stair steps that are happening here. From people that are just Jewish, they've moved to the Samaritans, that are half Jewish and half something else, to where we get to chapter 10 and 11, it's just the Gentiles. Like, they've, they've created a movement now to where they're realizing, we're literally taking this to everybody. Not just Jews, but, and we can all raise our hand and say, because I don't think any of us are Jewish here, praise God, it gets to the Gentiles, right? Praise God, I'm, I'm a part of this. Where John kind of gets the thing, and he's like, hey, you know what? Hey, Pete, on the way back, let's hit a few more Samaritan cities. We're glad recipients of that happening. Because by the time it gets to chapter 10 and 11, I'm glad Gentiles can trust in Jesus because I, I, I don't want to go to hell. 
and I want Jesus. I love Jesus. So we're glad recipients of this. So they're preaching the gospel on the way back. They have realized, this is what they realized. Peter and John realized, on the hike back, we don't have to just go straight back. Because we're Christians, there are going to be occasions all the way back where we can preach the gospel. And I don't want to have any unused occasions. We all have occasions for preaching the gospel, and I want to take advantage of every one of them. Somebody I've seen model this in my own life is Dr. Alvin Reed, the professor I'm studying under. Everywhere I go with him, it doesn't matter where we are and what we're doing, whoever we go to, like he's going to take the chance to talk to them about Jesus. I've gone out to eat with him, and every time the waitress comes, hey, we're going to pray for our food in just a second. Anything I can pray for you about? Um, Every time I'm with him, they always say yes. It's only been, they've only said no to me once in my life. No, that happened like two weeks ago. Other than that, like I had a 100% track record till two weeks ago. But, other, but he does this. And actually, when I go into restaurants, he's like, hey, Frank, hey, Bob, hey, Billy, how you doing? Like, knows everybody. We sit down. The guy comes over. I know you want to trust in Christ. I'm not quite there. I got a lot of things. He's like, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to keep praying. Like, he preaches the gospel. He does not have any unused occasions. He's living life every day with gospel intentionality. Living life every day. That's what we're called to. We're not, we're not called to probably lead some massive thing. We're called to every day live our life with the occasions of life that we go to. We go to the store, we go to the gas station, we go to the restaurant, we raise our children, we go to our job, we go to our college, we go to our dorm, we go to our work. All these occasions, not having unused occasions, but seizing everyday life with gospel intentionality for preaching the gospel, telling people. And the power of the gospel is we can create unforeseen movements. God can use us to create an unforeseen movement that we never thought possible. That's what's happening here. Jews to Samaritans, to Gentiles. This is no longer a localized occurrence just in Jerusalem. It has been up to this point, and that's what Luke's trying to help us see. We're shifting to Judea and Samaria, and we're soon going to get to the ends of the earth when we get to 14 and following. So, as we conclude, here's some, here's some things I want you to think about. I don't know if Simon was converted or not. I'm not sure. Commentators go both ways. Probably not. There is, uh, th- I don't know if this is true. But there are some church historians that have written that Simon wasn't. And later on, Simon became the leader of the Gnostics. Gnostics believe that Jesus wasn't flesh, that he was just spirit. And it's a whole different kind of thing. But they're not Christian. That Simon eventually kind of came into his own as the leader of the Gnostics. And there was like an ongoing feud the entire time. It's Peter versus Simon, Simon versus Peter. And they were against each other. I don't know if that's true. It may be. But if that's the case, then likely he wasn't. But here's some conclusions, some Concluding remarks. I'm just thinking, was Simon saved or was he not? I made a list of applications we can have in our own life. Whether he was or not, there's some things, whether he was or things whether he wasn't, that we need to realize. Um, first, trying to monetize the work of God, simony, not a good deal. We should not try to make money like, hey, I'll, I'll tell you the gospel, but you got to pay me $15. Then you can go to heaven. Otherwise, you know, figure it out yourself. Like, we shouldn't do that, right? We should not monetize the gospel. That means try to make money off something. Um, also, the next thing, this, this uh, repentance that Peter tells him he needs to have. We need to heed the warning of those that are more mature in the faith than us. If someone who's more mature in the faith, which we would think Peter is more, more mature than Simon, comes to us and says, hey, I see this. This is what's going on in your life. We should heed the warning of people that are more mature in the faith and listen to them. Really listen. It's, it, that's what's happening here. And if they're saying that we have something we need to repent of, we should listen. And we should not try to just evade judgment but we should truly repent. What's going on here? Stott says this about Simon. What really concerned Simon was that he would not receive God's pardon, but 
that he would just try to escape God's judgment. He wasn't trying to receive the pardon of God, just didn't want the judgment side. And so we should not try to evade judgment only, but instead we should receive the, want to seek out the repentance and pardon of God. Next, whenever he says that you need to pray, it's fine to ask for prayer, but you also should pray. I mean, that's what he was told to do, and he, he wouldn't do it. Um, next was the heart. You need to pray for not just your outward actions, but the intent of your heart. We all need to guard our hearts and watch the intents of our hearts. Our outward actions can be fine, but that's just pharisaical if our inward heart isn't following. We don't want to clean the outside of the plate and have a, a, a black heart. Instead, we want to have the right actions that flow from a heart that loves Jesus. And so we need to watch our heart. Some other things. If Simon was not saved, we need to watch this as a massive warning to those who think that they're following God but really aren't. I, I want to put some Bible under that because that can sound like, wait a second, he said he believed. So let's just read 1 Corinthians 15. I know I've referenced it many times, but let's just make sure we, we hear it. Because there is a kind of faith, a kind of believing that is not salvific, that does not lead until salvation. This is what chapter 15 says. So we're warning persevering faith in Christ. Not, yeah, I believe, but I don't really believe. This is what we mean. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received, and which you stand, and which you are being saved in that go- by that gospel, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed, unless you had faith in vain. So there's a way to believe in vain which is the same wording that we're using here of Simon. He believed. So the big warning for us is we need to have a persevering faith that continues. If you think about the, four, uh, the parable of the four soils, the fourth soil is the saving one. The other two, one certainly wasn't, but two and three sounded like it for a little bit, but then kind of died out. We don't want those to be the kind of faith that's being described. Uh, the last thing I would just say is this. Uh, here, Simon viewed the Holy Spirit kind of like the force from Star Wars. Like, give me the power. You know, I want the power. And the Holy Spirit is not like a force or a power that we receive. He's a person. And we, we pursue the Holy Spirit because he's God. He's not a means to an end. He's God. He is the end. We pursue knowing the Spirit because he is God. And that lets us know Christ and know the Father. And they're all three as one. And so we don't Think of the Holy Spirit as some kind of power to receive in order to magnify us. Instead, he's a person, and we, we pursue the Spirit because he's, he is God himself. So as we go into our, a conclusion here, I just wanna, I want you to think about these things. The gospel has been now given to unreached places. Where are the places that need to hear the gospel in your life? Where are the pockets of subculture that need to hear the gospel that you can proclaim the gospel to? The gospel is undeniably attractive and powerful. What has it done in your own life? Think about what's happened in your own life and stop and pause and give glory to God and let your affections be moved by what Christ has done in your own life. The next one is think about what happened in John's life from let's kill him with fire to let's go down and do mission work with them. And is is there a moving in your own heart towards people in your life that needs to hear the gospel that you've never even thought about? And lastly, like John, are we saying, I don't want to have any unused occasions. Whenever I'm done, I want to live my life with gospel intentionality with everybody I see and know. Think about those things and pray about those things. Write some down that maybe the Holy Spirit's leading you. We're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper where we respond in worship, remembering what Christ has done for us on the cross, and then we'll worship together. Let's pray. God, be with us now as we...
take the Lord's Supper together as a church body and as a church family. And I pray that as we do this, there is a tangible uh, understanding and a tangible proclaiming of the gospel to our own hearts. And that as we think about your body broken, and as we think about your blood shed, that our affections would be moved because of Christ and what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.